Welcome to Betterscope. I'm Professor Rich, and I'm here to put success stories under the Betterscope. Today's special guest is Barnaby Howarth. Barnaby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rich. Professor Rich, sorry. Good to be here. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry. It happens all the time. <laughs> so, Barnaby, I don't want to spoil the incredible story behind what you're going to tell us about today. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and the incredible things that you've actually gone through and have you know, come through the other end? Certainly, I'd love to. Um, but just to start with, I I think the the thing I'm most proud of in my story is that I don't think any of it's sensational or spectacular or incredible, just resilience from an Aussie bloke who got dealt some challenges and just kept on putting one foot in front of the other. So when I was... 14, I was diagnosed with diabetes, with type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was playing representative Australian rules football and I wanted to make that my career. So I didn't so you're know pretty good. There's really. a whole lot of talent there and then you get hit with this curveball. Yeah, I just didn't know though if, if diabetes meant that I had to put a pin in my aspirations for football. But I, because I had no idea whether it did or didn't, I thought all I can do is just keep turning up to games and training and doing as well as I possibly can and see where it takes me. Then when I left high school in 1998, 1997, I was drafted by the Sydney Swans to play a season for them in 1998. So, so things are looking up at this point. We were thinking, hey, it's you know beating the diabetes one way or another. I was thinking, yeah, I, it was. I, I thought my life was, my challenge in life was diabetes. And I thought I'd conquered it. And I was, I was you know, high and mighty and feeling really good about myself. Mm-hmm. I, uh, because I was cut by the Swans after one year, though, I moved down to Melbourne to do a pre-season with the Melbourne Demons. I wasn't picked up by them, but I signed a two-year contract to play for Sandringham in the VFL, thinking that's where the talent scouts in Australia are. So I thought if I was playing well down there, I'd get noticed and get a second chance. I wasn't even didn't even come close to getting any attention from AFL clubs. So I moved back to Sydney and started playing for my local club, the Penrose Demons. But then in 2005, when I was club captain of Penrose, I went out and was having what I thought was a quiet drink with three mates of mine. But on the way home, one of the guys, one of the mates I was out with started a fight that ended really badly for myself and one other guy. I was king hit from behind in the jaw, which tore an artery in my brainstem and resulted in a stroke a week later. So my life was just turning on its head and diabetes all of a sudden became the least of my problems. Absolutely. So then uh, that must have also caused the uh, the end of the football career? Uh, yeah, did, at the time it did. I, um, I found in terms of resilience and challenges and where the hell am I going in life, I found I was back in the same place as I was when I got diabetes. I had no idea what I could do and what I could achieve. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to become, you know, a spectacular Nelson Mandela type inspirational uh, guru, but I just kept on putting one foot in front of the other. Did my exercises as well as I could. You know, got some got some good achievements in small little um, small little increments. But uh, it was the day I sorry when I when I had my struggles on ninety six games at Pennant Hills. But I couldn't even stand still after my stroke. My bones were so bad. So I just put a line through my footy career, thinking I'd been forced into an early retirement, four games short of my 100th. 
But a few years after I got back on my feet, our club's vice president came and told me he'd spoken to our fourth grade coach, who was more than happy for me to play four games in fourth grade so I could reach my 100th. And that and was so actually, I, yeah, that was safe because, you know, uh, Aussie rules, buddy, you do get a few knocks when you play in that game. I wasn't sure. My mother told me it wasn't. My mother told me it was the worst idea I've ever had. But I went and saw my uh, neurologist who was overseeing my rehab, and she signed a letter to say it was fine and I was at no greater risk than any other Harry Sackeroles who was playing footy. So, yes. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the people who are playing footy, to be honest. (laughs) Well, it was what it was. I um, I was back in the same boat as Mm -hmm. before diabetes. I just had no idea. I and just, just tell me that. Play, but I didn't know if I'd get through one quarter. But what was the age difference? So 14 when you got hit with diabetes, and then when you were at the point where you actually had the stroke, what was the age difference? I was 25 when I had the stroke. So, so considerable so, more life experience, because when you're 14, your know, hormones are flying around as well, and mm. puberty's kicking in, all the other things, and you just don't know who you are at that point. You've got very little chance of knowing who you are in reality. Yeah. So when you were 25... You'd learned a lot of things, and that I, contributed towards the resilience. Yeah, I, I had. I didn't realise at the time. At the time, I thought I was I, I was wiped clean, and I was going to start again. <laughs> I was pretty flat after the stroke. I thought all the all that you know Aussie resilience stuff, just putting one foot in front of the other, the and and it all works yeah. out. I thought that had been a waste of time because I here I had this stroke and I couldn't stand still, and everything was horrible. Um, and I just didn't think that the way I'd gone about recovering in my my rehab stuff was right. I thought I needed something tangible, something excellent, something a magic bullet or a mystical X factor, which I didn't have. So I thought I, I thought I was going down the wrong path. But in hindsight, I think having a stroke at twenty five, with the lessons I'd learned through diabetes and through life in general, actually was a benefit. I saw a lot of older people in my rehab hospital um, who you could just see in their eyes, they'd just given up. They'd had kids, they bought houses, mm-hmm. you know, they, they'd done all their big stuff, they'd achieved all their big life goals. I was 25, I'd never been married, you know, I hadn't bought a house, wanted to start a family. So I, I had ambition. And also the fact that I was, the fact that I was only 25, that was still pretty fit from playing football, meant that I had the physical uh, capabilities to recover and to do my rehab exercises as well as I could. So it was actually quite beneficial, I reckon. That's really interesting. So tell me, you went from being you know, in rehab to being able to potentially play again. How long did that sort of time period take? Uh, years. So the, the yeah. stroke was 2005, and I played that game of footy in about 2015. So it was about 10 years. Um, but it was, I don't think going from the day after a stroke, I don't think you could play football the day after, regardless of what sort of mystical X factor or magic bullet or secret recipe. It would need to be magic, yeah. I just physically don't think it's possible. No. So it took 10 years of accumulation of small, incremental, tiny steps. Like one of the exercises I had to do, I had to get a cup, uh, sorry, get a spoonful of little plastic beads in a spoon out of a bowl and put them into a cup. And as I was doing it, I always thought, this is the most useless exercise in world history. I'm never going to need to get a bowl of plastic beads out of a bowl and put them in a a mug. 
But it's things like that. It was the accumulation of things like that that have meant I can now sit here and talk to a professor over a podcast. And so all these things you were doing, I'm sure there was, you know, method in the madness, that, uh, that, that kind of exercise with the spoon and the beads. It's redeveloping those fine motor skills, and it's, you know, it's reconnecting the parts of the brain that may have been kind of uh, damaged during the stroke, I'm assuming. That's exactly what it is. So when I had this stroke, what had happened was that all the signals I'd built up from my brain to the left side of my body over 25 years had been wiped clean, so, which is why I couldn't stand still. Mm-hmm. So I was getting, so I had to relearn how to use my left side again, which, you know, the fine motor skill stuff were the hardest. Um, the gross motor skill stuff, like the balancing on one leg, wasn't as difficult, but it's, just, it's really frustrating and it's, you don't see big jumps in improvement from day to day. It's all just really small, like tiny improvements over a long time. But if you go like that, then it doesn't matter how long it takes. If you end up being able to play footy again and drive a car again, it's worth the, the frustration. And I think that's the amazing thing about your story, and there's a lot more of it to come, that you did have that determination to stick at it for that duration of time. Because as you say, it was 10 years from the stroke to actually being able to play footy again at any level. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge amount of determination and effort. Yeah, thanks. That's very kind of you to say, but I, I don't think it was determination and, and real internal drive. I think it was just stubbornness. <laughs> Being 25 and coming from my football background, I saw my stroke as a football injury. So I was like, well, right, well, today I can't stand, I can't flip an egg on a saw in a fry pan, mm-hmm. I can't get a bowl of plastic beads out of a bowl into a cup. So to do that, I need to do this exercise. If I still can't do it, I'm going to need to do it again, again, again. So it's just that stubbornness, just that I'm injured and I need to get better. The only way to do it is to do what my therapist was suggesting is the best way to go. So that same spirit that would have kept you in the game if you were 20 points down, and there's only 10 minutes of the game down, you know, to go, to hell with this, I'm still going to win. That's the perfect metaphor. It's... There were a lot of times along the way where I thought, this is useless. What I'm doing now is a waste of time and I'm getting nowhere. But I just sort of sat back and had faith in my therapists. Mm-hmm. I knew them as human beings and they, they were all good human beings that wouldn't have done something if, if it was useless. So I thought, well, I don't think it's doing anything, but I know that this person and this person and this person have got my best interests at heart. So... I'll do what they say and hope they're right because it's a long way back if they're wrong. Well, and clearly they were, but the story doesn't end there. Tell us what happened beyond that. So beyond that, I did get to play my 100th game of football, by the Excellent way, news. Um, which was one of the great days of my life. Um, but beyond that, one of the things I felt like I, I let myself down on was love. Mm-hmm. So my, my motto that got me through the initial rehab phases was something an old footy coach used to say. He used to say, focus on the game plan, the result will take care of itself. So I, that was all the accumulation of the small exercises and doing all that mm-hmm. stuff, right, and just hoping that it all worked out in the end. But when it came to love, I was doing the opposite. I was focusing on the result. I just wanted to find someone, and I was probably being a bit of a toolbox and not a great person <laughs> to be around. So I just took a leap of faith one day and thought, well, you know what, I'm not finding anyone doing it this way. So I started, I reversed it. I focused on the game plan, knocked off a few rough edges in my personality. And a couple of weeks later, I met Angela Gerges, um, just through a mutual friend. 
And we, that was the old fireworks, instant flame, romance thing. We just both found each other at the exact right time that we needed that person in our lives. And it was just love and, and fireworks from there. So we've been dating, Andrew and I have been dating for about 10 months. And she told me she'd had breast cancer before, but it was now, it was gone. She was fine. But 10 months into our relationship, the breast cancer came back um, and it was stage four. So it was pretty serious. That is, well, there is no stage five. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and she was basically told by doctors nicely, like it, they presented as well as they could, but basically said, you know, ring your mother, tell her to come in and say goodbye. Like it's, it was pretty pretty last minute sort of stuff. So it just rocked her world, which rocked my world. We had been talking about getting married before then and in Angela's first breast cancer scare, she was seeing a guy and he took off. It was too much for him. So he took off um, and I, I thought I learned how to be a – I learned my uh, values in life from my father and my grandfather. And I, I knew that if they were in that situation, there's no way they'd leave this lady in desperation on her own. <laughs> so not long after Andrew got the news, I proposed to her a bit in Southwest Rocks and we got married and it was one of the most beautiful marriage celebrations I've ever been a part of, which is quite biased, but it was pretty bloody good. We went on 19 legs of our honeymoon and the last of which we got back from less than a week before she joined her father in heaven. So it was one of the, it was one of the hardest times in my life, but it was also one of the most beautiful, which sounds really weird to say when someone passes away, but just knowing that when the chips were down for someone else, I, I could put my hand up and say I was there. And I was there because I loved my wife, not because I thought I need to be a good guy. I was there because my wife was scared. She was in a you know really tough time, and I was able to be there with her. So it wasn't a case of doing it out of duty. You're doing it because you really wanted to. Correct. Correct. Yes. I um. Yeah, I've, I've thought about it often, and I on the first night when Angela was diagnosed, she was just freaking out. Like she just um, she couldn't do it. On her own, but I, I, when I said to you, when, when you asked me about, uh, our love story, it was exactly that. It was a real sort of Romeo and Juliet finding each other at the right time. We were the yin to each other's yang. It was all that, you know, romantic, uh, hogwash that everyone loves, but it was exactly that. And that's why I stayed, not because I felt obliged to stay, because I loved my wife and I would have done anything for her. So do you believe in fate? Do you think that maybe there was a, a long connection here of you, know, you went through all these things to be the right person at the right time to look after her? That's a very deep question, and I don't want to offend anybody that does believe in fate, but no, I don't. No, it's I just think it was the way it was, we yeah. We both just got incredibly lucky to have found each other at the exact right time. Um, Angela, Angela's family are Egyptian, mm -hmm. and Angela used to tell me one of her biggest regrets was that she'd sort of lost touch with the church. She, her family used to go to church every Sunday and were quite close to the church community. So I said, well, no brainer, we've got to go back. So we started going to church every Sunday. Then when Angela's 
when Angela's uh, cancer scare came up and it became public, the priest, we, we want to get married in the Coptic church, mm-hmm. but the priest said I couldn't do it because I wasn't Coptic. And I said, oh, mm-hmm. what, what do I have to do to get baptised? And he said, you have to do five learning modules. You've got to come in and see me and I'll take you through you know, parts of the Bible and make sure you understand it and blah, blah, blah. I was like, all right, cool, let's start. Yeah, so where, I went where do we start? Day. Simple as that. Yeah, pretty much. I went in one day after work and he took me through his learning module and it went for like an hour and a half. It was exhausting. And I said, so that's only one module of five. This is going to be tiring. And he said, no, that's all five. I, you know, given the time restraints, I put all five into one. You can get, you can get baptized tomorrow if you want. So literally, so he baptized. managed to compress it down, and you know, yeah. he was aware. He was taken on board the situation. There were certain rules he had to adhere to. Yeah, and he found a way to make it work for everybody. He's a really well. So he is a really good guy, Father Matthew. Um, he and I used to talk about the swans and mm-hmm. uh, Australian sport every time we saw each other. So when he heard the news about Angela, he did everything he could to make our lives together uh, more more beautiful. So that was one of them. I, I ended up getting baptised the week after that session. We got married that November um, and we kept on going to church. I actually, between the engagement and Angela passing, Father Matthew rang me before Easter um, and asked if I'd like to serve as a deacon on Easter Sunday. <laughs> I initially I thought, well, hang on, I'm just this everyday Australian Harry Sakharals who's played a bit of footy and you know, tried to look after my wife. I don't know if I feel like I've done what I need to do to be a deacon in the Coptic Church, but it sort of it didn't really matter. Well, he clearly did. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Like he's a, he's a priest. He was his question, not mine, to apply for it. So, yeah, I served as a deacon quite a few times. Um, and that just, it just turned my life around. I, I often talked about the church community as being like my football community. And mm-hmm. it's just a bunch of, like a really big bunch of good people all being drawn together for the same reason. In their, in their eyes, it was God. In my eyes, it was football. But they're really similar communities. When people ask you how you are, they actually care and they look at you and they look you in the eye. It was just a, just a beautiful place to be. Very interesting. It's a very interesting parallel, that whole idea of community. Mm. Moving, moving on beyond that, though, you've actually gone on to help lots of other people. Tell us about how you've gone on to help the wider community. So I'm a keynote speaker on resilience. I, um, I ended up there. I'm just a sole trader. But I ended up there because I got a job at the ABC as an auto queue operator for the news. Um, I initially, I've been there for 14 years mm-hmm. and I tried climbing the ladder internally to get a, a better paying job than auto queue for the news. But I just couldn't convince total strangers in job interviews what value I could bring to a role because I wasn't sure about myself still. So I thought I'll start a business as a keynote speaker because, A, because I like speaking. Um, and I, I just needed another source of income where I wasn't. I didn't have to run things past the boss. I, I'm the I'm the be all and end all. Like if if I if I make a decision that's wrong, I have to live with it. But if I make a decision that's right, then I, you know, bask in the glory. 
So, yeah, look, I, I just started as a bit of a, I guess it was a bit of a side hustle. My business motto is be a good bloke. So it was pretty casual, um, but it just exploded on me. I think that, so my message is just exactly what I was saying to you before about putting one foot in front of the other, focus on the game plan, the result will take care of itself. Just those small step-by-step way of recovering from things rather than searching for the magic bullet and the mystical X factor, which I, I don't believe exists just quietly. Um, and it's a real point of difference in a pretty crowded marketplace when you've got a lot of, you know, a lot of people are saying they've got the answer and the short-term three-step solution. But I say, look, I don't have a short-term solution. This is what I did. You know, it worked for me. Take it or leave it. I'm not trying to sell products and get more bookings. I just do what I do. And I, I love it. I get a lot out of it myself. So it's actually quite selfish. <laughs> But I'm yeah, sure if with um, everything that you've been through, if there was a short-term solution, you would have found it based on everything I've heard about you. But sometimes it takes 10 years for you to resolve situations or more in some cases. Exactly right. And it's, I, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I think I am pretty successful. But all of that success has come about through relationships. Like I'm on this podcast with you today through a friend, Lubo, from a business networking uh, group, BX. And Lubo and I were chatting just as, as blokes and got to know each other. And mm-hmm. he said, oh, look, I'm going to start this podcast. Would you be a guest? I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll help you out. And you and I spent about 45 minutes earlier trying to get that technology started. A few technical challenges, yes. It's, uh, it'll be all right on the night, as they used to say. Yeah, I just, I just don't believe there is short-term, click your fingers and everything, you'll be fine, solutions to things. I think it's if you see something that's successful now, it's happened because a lot of good people got together, communicated, talked about it, and came up with solutions and worked over a, over a long period of time. So, Barnaby, tell us about some of the places you've actually been a keynote speaker. So I've given speeches all around the world and around Australia. I've been to San Diego, Calgary, Dubai, uh, New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand, on two cruise ships and all around Australia. Um, I've spoken for big business like Google, Berkshire Hathaway, Specialty Insurance, and the Sydney Swans. Um, and I've spoken to schools and uh, youth leadership groups and sports clubs. So it's I basically I don't come in with a template that suits everybody. I speak to the client, hear what they need to hear, and cater my speech to what they want. And what sort of feedback have you had from people after they've attended one of your speeches? One of the best parts of feed, one of the best pieces of feedback I got was from a kid in a year twelve leadership conference in Adelaide. I finished my presentation. This kid ran over. This boy ran over. He said, "Oh, buddy, thanks so much. That was really cool. Thanks so much." I was like, "Yeah, no worries, mate. Just you know, calm down. It's okay." And he goes, "No, no. I saw you at a conference in year nine. I did everything you said, and here I am at a year twelve conference." So that was one of the best pieces of feedback for really nice. me. That was one of those, you know, they talk about speaking, if you can change one person's attitude on life, it's worth it. And that was the moment for me. And is it that the key message that you get across people is one step at a time, or is there a little bit more to it than that? Basically, that's it. It's, it's try your hardest to be proud of yourself, whether you win, lose, or draw. 
focus on the game plan, the result will take care of itself. Um, I'm not going out with fireworks and smoke machines and Eye of the Tiger saying, you know, think about life this way and you can walk over hot coals. It's life's a journey. It's not a, an overnight destination. So you've got to just work hard for a long time. And I found over, over my time, I also host a podcast and I've spoken to some people who the society sees as pretty successful, but they all got successful because when the rest of the world stops trying because it feels like what they're doing is a waste of time, successful people are the ones who say, you know what, I'm doing the right thing, I'm going to keep going. So, yeah, it's, it's not, I don't come in with a, a glorified answer for things. I just say, look, the successful people are the ones who just keep going. You don't stop when things get tough. So, Barry, what's the name of the podcast so people can look out for it? The podcast is called Everyday Greatness, and we're going to be co-hosted by the Sydney Swans next year. That's very uh, it's exciting. It's a video podcast coming from their media room. So the Swans are putting forward uh, players and staff as co-hosts. I've just sent an invitation to Delta Goodrum, who I, I've got no idea if she'll do it, but um, her Delta and I went to the same high school, so hopefully there's a twig of commonality. And she says yes, but, yeah, look, it's going to be exciting. And if I remember correctly, uh, Delta also had cancer at one point, yeah? Correct, yeah. So maybe there's that connection there that will help. Yeah, possibly. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not using no, cancer story as a, as a selling point, but, yeah, it might tweak something in her eyes. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Barnaby, where can people find you? Uh, besides right here on the screen, they can find me on my website at barnabyhoworth.com uh, and all over social media on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I've got a YouTube page. There's an Everyday Greatness YouTube page. So actually any of those joints or I prefer speaking to people in person. So if anybody has seen something on this podcast and thinks, oh, that, that sounds pretty cool, ring me, 0404-851-203. Fantastic. Barnaby, this has been an absolutely fantastic and an inspiring conversation today. And despite what you may say, I think it comes across that you're very amazing and incredibly humble at the same time. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Professor Rich, and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Betascope. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe for more. Until next time, I'm Professor Rich, and this has been Betascope.